Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. Welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to talk a, a little bit about concerns regarding biblical counseling and maybe adding some clarity to the movement. But before we do that, I want to remind you of PeaceWorks University. Each week here on the podcast, I come back with a reminder that PeaceWorks University really is your next best step. If you've not uh, joined PeaceWorks University, then you're really missing out on hours upon hours of resources uh, that are here to help you have a gospel-centered response to domestic abuse. In fact, PeaceWorks University uh, to my knowledge, is the most robust and complete collection of resources for domestic abuse from a Christian or gospel-centered perspective. If you benefit from the PeaceWorks podcast week after week, then absolutely PeaceWorks University is your best next step. You can find out more about PeaceWorks University at chrismoles.org. All right, guys. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you a little bit today about um, biblical counseling and domestic abuse. It's the world that that I live in, and I often get questions about the intersectionality of those two worlds, like how they fit together. And um, I would say the majority of the questions that I get are positive. They're along the lines of, okay, Chris, how do we address this problem? How do we have a better response to abuse as biblical counselors, or it's uh, from the other perspective. It's like, how do I bring in the scriptures to really shore up my advocacy ministry or help in my uh, domestic abuse work? However, there are times and moments, and I've often shied away from it. I haven't really wanted to be the guy who um, answers the, the negatives or the concerns, but I guess it's one of the roles that has to fall to me. And so sometimes questions will come in uh, quite regularly about biblical counseling's effectiveness or biblical counseling's um, application to the work in abuse uh, or concerns in which biblical counseling seems insufficient to the problem or um, questions from biblical counselors who wonder if um our approach has gone too far, you know, as um, is not biblical enough. And that's usually where the argument uh, goes. It's, um, you know, why are you so biblical or why aren't you more biblical? That's typically where it goes. So I thought today might be helpful just to walk through kind of uh, four filters, kind of four frameworks that I see as central to the movement. Because what I think happens in our discussions is when, when folks approach me with questions about biblical counseling, they're usually basing their understanding of the entire model or the entire movement on one encounter with a biblical counselor. And I think that's kind of unfair because uh, the movement in itself is really a broad movement in that there are a lot of different types of people in the movement. Yes, there, there are some categories that are pretty consistent, and some of us are a tiny bit of an outlier in that. 
I would say that theologically, most biblical counselors kind of fall into a Reformed or Reformed-esque category, although there are some of us who would fall outside of that. I do think um, many biblical counselors that, that have higher education degrees come from kind of the same background, although some of us do not. And it, it is a, a much broader movement than I think we, we initially would, would see it as, especially if you're coming uh, from a case where you have been helped or there's been an attempt to help from a biblical counselor. So here's, here's what I'm getting at. What is it? What really is biblical counseling in a nutshell? And then does it apply to abuse? And why is it that it seems that there is so much negative talk in the abuse world about biblical counseling. So I'm going to try to clarify that in just a few minutes, uh, probably not successfully. But here's what I think, guys. As I was thinking about this and, and just some of the feedback I've been getting lately, for me, I think we could, there's so much more to this, but I think we could boil down biblical counseling as a practice in uh, four, four key elements, uh, four key elements that are kind of held universally in the biblical counseling movement. The first is the sufficiency of Scripture. So it's a, um, the sufficiency of Scripture being a doctrinal position, a theological position, that I really feel like you'd have to hold to be a biblical counselor. I'm just not sure you could say, I'm a biblical counselor, if you didn't believe in the a theology of the sufficiency of Scripture. Now, the sufficiency of Scripture, doctrinally speaking, is the idea that the Bible has the information we need to live a godly life. Uh, it comes out of, in, in many ways, the, the Reformed view of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now, of course, we know that that doesn't mean what, what some people have referred to as solo scriptura, like the only thing you ever use is scripture, right? We understand that there are some aspects of our life that will be scripturally, biblically informed, but not verbatim, biblically driven. For instance, when I taught my uh, oldest son how to drive a car, um, I would say I was biblically informed, but really there's not much information in the Bible about driving a car. At least I haven't found it. But there is information about how to handle aspects of road rage and anxiety and wisdom and things like that. So the scriptures are sufficient for living a godly life. Everything that we need for life and godliness, right, has been provided to us through his divine power, through the knowledge of, of Jesus. And so biblical counselors are going to hold to the scripture, the sufficiency of scripture. Now, some would say, okay, that's great. How does that apply then to domestic abuse and the work that we do? Well, I, I think it applies well because I would agree uh, with with the idea that the scripture is sufficient. I would say that uh, every aspect of our counsel should be scripturally informed, that we should be able to turn to the pages of scripture and find direction for life. Now, I think one of the problems, one of the hangups we tend to have uh, as biblical counselors, and hopefully we can have a, a, a conversation about this, is I think one of the dangers is we may reject outside wisdom too quickly. That is, we might reject observational truth in an attempt to find in the pages of Scripture uh, 
a um, safety plan or a procedure for contacting law enforcement. But understand, this book is timeless. The Bible, I'm holding my Bible right now, for those of you listening on, on the podcast. This book is timeless, but at the same time, it is written in time. It is historic. And so there are just some aspects of living in today's world that we'll need to negotiate with biblical wisdom, not direct biblical instruction. And I think that's the very heart of scriptural sufficiency. So one of the key aspects of biblical counseling is we believe the scripture is sufficient. And if you're going to be a biblical counselor, you should believe that the scriptures are sufficient. One of the dangers is you may reject outside wisdom too quickly. Here's a here's an example of that. The the scriptures inform our theology and our worldview and the way we live our lives. That is scriptural sufficiency. And so when I get information that helps me process and understand the dynamics and impact of abuse, I don't wholesale embrace that. I apply it through the filter of scripture. And that helps serve victims and perpetrators better, in my opinion. And certainly, that's what I'm going to do if I'm a biblical counselor. To do otherwise, to step outside of the scripture and to say, well, the scripture is only partially sufficient or it's insufficient to this problem, would would make me something other than a biblical counselor. And I would need to be honest about that and to step away from it. So scriptural sufficiency, pretty central to the work that we do. I think the second is the centrality of the gospel. If we're really going to be biblical counselors, we have to believe in the good news of Jesus Christ, that God sent his son into the world to save us, to set us apart, uh, to shut down the, the self-righteous system that, that competes um, for, for worship. I think we have to embrace the good news. And so that means we have to be really candid and honest about, um, about the gospel and really present the gospel as the only hope. I think sometimes in domestic violence, domestic abuse work, we do have a tendency to overlook the gospel um, because we, we focus so much on safety, as we should. But safety is often a precursor to redemption. We want to make sure people are safe and sound and secure and sane, and then we want to present them with the gospel, making sure that they understand they're connected to their only real hope. That's the hope that's found in Jesus. This is of in particular benefit to the perpetrator. So sometimes, um, I would say primarily in the biblical counseling world, most of the folks I interact with are very gospel-centered, and I value the fact that they love the gospel. Sometimes in my domestic abuse work in that world, I find people who aren't very happy with the gospel, especially if it's applied to perpetrators. So there's got to be a balance. If I'm going to be a biblical counselor, I got to believe the gospel. I have to present the gospel, and I think the gospel needs to be applicable to everyone. Now, I want to avoid easy believism. I want to avoid this idea that uh, the gospel can simply be applied without an individual's um, without an individual's consent, without an individual's heart transformation. Well, certainly, um, we're sowing the seed, but it's God who brings the harvest. And so uh, the gospel is going to be central to this. So, so two things right off the top, right? The sufficiency of Scripture. We believe the Scripture is sufficient for life and godliness. Uh, and we think the gospel is central. We have to talk about 
uh, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, the hope that's only found in him, the kingdom of God, the, the gospel of peace that has to come into our counseling. A gospel impotent counsel probably isn't biblical counseling. Third is, is what we call progressive sanctification. It's another doctrinal position. In fact, sometimes I say the two pillars that kind of hold up biblical counseling are the sufficiency of Scripture and progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is the idea, in, in the simplest terms, that believers grow and change. That when you come to know Jesus as your Savior and you follow him as your Lord, you will change over time. I would say that through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, individuals experience change incrementally over time. They progress toward holiness and in holiness, progressive sanctification. Now, that's really key to biblical counseling because we expect our counselees to change, right? We expect the people that we work with to grow, to uh, be more like Christ. So two things there that are key in domestic abuse work, I think the, the first is that we have uh, an outcome-based approach. And so that's one of the things I value about biblical counseling in domestic abuse care is there's some outcomes. There's expectations. We expect change and transformation. Now, to me, one of the problems for us in domestic abuse work as biblical counselors is sometimes we, have, uh, we haven't thought through the agenda or the goal, where we're going. And so sometimes we hold victims and perpetrators to the same standard of progressive sanctification rather than seeing their paths being separate or different in need of different types of counsel to get them where they need to go, which is to be more like Jesus. Because obviously, in my mind anyway, an oppressive person um, is not at all like Jesus, whereas somebody being oppressed, right, is much more um, like Jesus in the in the real sense of the world as someone who's experienced and suffered oppression. So the counsel for the sufferer for change and growth is much different than the counsel for the perpetrator uh, who is causing the suffering. And so I think the the goal, the doctrine's central. It's important. It's something that we have to keep promoting. But there are some dangers, right, when we hold everyone to the same standard or when we don't hold people to the right standard. And I see this quite a bit where we don't expect real change, especially from perpetrators. We expect uh, contrition and feigned repentance. And um, then we hold the victim accountable to forgive without there really being repentance and genuine transformation. And to me, that isn't really progressive sanctification. It's more of a formulaic uh, response. And I think Progressive sanctification is a, a massive benefit to the biblical counselor. But sometimes in our work, we force change or we excuse the lack of change without inviting the Holy Spirit to come and do the work that only he can do, which is to bring about that transformation that leads to change, that leads to passion, and that leads to um, that evidence, repentance. So um, sufficiency of scripture is really big. Centrality of the gospel has to be. If you're going to be a biblical counselor, you got to have those two things. You got to believe the scripture is sufficient. You need to um, 
believe in the centrality of the gospel. You need to have a doctrine of progressive sanctification because that's where hope comes from through change. And then fourth, I think you need to see the importance of the local church. The local church is really important to the process of biblical counseling because you have to have continued discipleship and accountability. Now, again, from my perspective, that fits our work pretty well as victims need support and perpetrators need accountability. For me, one of the dangers I think that happens is we conflate the importance of the local church with the importance of obeying authority. And I think that's sometimes, um, I don't know that that's really good biblical care, because I think sometimes we will say, well, we overstate authority. We say, well, you need to submit to the authority of the local church, and you need to do what we're telling you to do, and you need to follow this process that sometimes becomes a legalistic confining process rather than saying, hey, the local church is a rich resource that God has given us, right? Uh, the, the church is a rich resource that God has granted us to help us in support and accountability and wisdom rather than the church is an institutional um, um, an institution that has this hierarchy that you must conform to. And that's been one thing that drives me a little crazy, listener, is um, how these rich truths, I think, just can be subtly mismanaged to the point that it actually harms victims and empowers perpetrators. For instance, if, uh, and let's just work it backwards, if the importance of the local church isn't that we use the body, that we um, ask the body of Christ to come and surround individuals with support and accountability, but instead it becomes an um, institutional power play, right? then we're not helping individuals. We're actually just um, contributing to the problem. If the church becomes a coercive, controlling power broker, then how is it different than the oppressive system that the victim is already in in their family? So the church, is it a power over structure? I would hope not. But if it is, then that importance of the local church is actually going to do more harm than good, if that makes sense. What about progressive sanctification? If progressive sanctification is about rules to becoming holy that's acceptable only to the institutional, you know, church to the power players, then what ends up happening? We are, again, using the scriptures to coerce individuals into conformity rather than inviting them in to a relationship with Jesus that will produce conformity, real conformity, not legalistic uh, observation or obligation. The gospel, again, if the gospel is central, the gospel of peace and freedom and liberty and hope, and all the things that Jesus promises to bring us through redemption, if that is central to our counsel, then we should expect freedom and we should expect either repentance or obstinance as people either embrace the gospel or they oppose the gospel. What we shouldn't see, again, is the gospel reduced to a propositional statement whereby one person, uh, through some kind of agreement, simply changes their eternal location to say, well, you know, yeah, I'll do that so I can go to heaven someday. Well, that's a very dangerous outcome, especially in counseling and care when you are expecting transformation. 
And then the sufficiency of Scripture. If the Scripture is informing our theology and we are getting our theological approaches from Scripture, so we understand concepts like love and marriage and hope and peace, then that will impact how we counsel others. If we're simply using the Scriptures as a weapon, looking for the word abuse or looking for a strategy or a narrative that's going to help us give a person a formula, then I'm afraid we're going to construct systems that are inferior to the rich value that the scripture brings. So again, I bring all this up because often I will have people ask me, you know, well, Chris, can biblical counseling be helpful in cases of abuse? And I say, absolutely. I think these four uh, frameworks, these four keys are so rich and helpful that they, they will be valuable to individuals who are suffering and to those who are doing harm. However, the same framework, if not properly uh, nuanced or clarified or used in conjunction with uh, good counsel and wisdom and um, accountability, can be weaponized or um, not even weaponized. It could be to a point that it can be simplified and reduced uh, to a system that will do more harm than good. And so for me... I think what I would love to see in the biblical counseling movement is not a more rigid adherence, uh, but a much broader vision that says, you know what, we believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. And for some folks, that's going to be more law-driven. But for the majority of us, we want to be more grace-driven. We want the Scriptures to inform our approaches and our responses. We want the gospel to be central. For some, it's going to be propositional, but for many of us, it's going to be much richer and robust than that because Jesus didn't just come to give us a proposition. He didn't just come to give us a plan for escape. He came to give us life and life more abundantly. And yeah, we believe the scriptures will draw us into conformity with Christ. And so progressive sanctification is an expectation. We expect people to grow, not into some uniform um, version of Christian conformity, not to some institutional conformity, but to the heart and the mind and the mission of Jesus. We love the diversity of the church unified by the spirit and the bond of peace. And so we expect people to change, but we think that change is going to be incremental. It's going to be over time. It's going to be through the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And it's not always going to look the same. And then lastly, the local church has to be important in that process not as some monolithic you know, overlord that um, structures a hierarchy of power and control, but as a community of faith that surrounds people that are hurting and that um, holds accountable those who are sinning, that gently restores individuals who are willing and who, who allow consequences from the hand of God to affect those who are unwilling. To me, that is biblical care. And so I call myself a biblical counselor. Um, I try to operate within that framework. I try to be faithful to those principles. And if I ever deviate from them, I, I probably need to stop using the term. Um, but it's broad, and I think it has rich application for abuse. But when simplified, when narrow, uh, when applied in a narrow band and a narrow framework, uh, it can be 
it can be less than helpful and sometimes dangerous. So I hope that discussion at least clarifies a little bit where I stand and how I use the term. And, and hopefully, if you're a biblical counselor listening, maybe, maybe you'll take the time to think through some of these basic elements and say, yeah, what do I think? When it comes to domestic abuse, am I taking a very narrow approach and applying uh, um, a, a laser-like approach to scriptural conformity, or am I allowing the scripture to inform my theology and allowing myself to see the scripture as sufficient for everything, for life and godliness? And is that affecting the way that I care for individuals? Am I bringing the gospel to bear for change and transformation or just propositions that I expect people to believe so I can give them uh, answers for the real problems that they have. I have a biblical counseling friend who says that. Uh, he says, you know, the problem that you have is far, uh, the real problem in your life is far worse than you can imagine, but the solution is far greater. Uh, do I really understand the depth of, of the problem? And then, you know, am I calling people to change? Not not through legalistic conformity, but through real, genuine, Holy Spirit-driven transformation? And am I relying on the local church? Not as a dictatorship, but as a community that can surround individuals that are hurting and bring accountability uh, to those who need help. All right, well, I hope that adds clarity. Um, hopefully, we'll continue this conversation a little bit more. Uh, there's only so much I could do in a 20-minute podcast, but I hope that at least gives you a little bit of understanding of where I'm coming from on the topic, and um, maybe we'll add some more layers to it in the future. Thank you guys so much for joining us on the PeaceWorks podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, we'll see you next time. God bless.